Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the towns of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, oh, that's verse 21. We'll stop there. <laughs> Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Great to see you guys. Uh, in our family, we're, we're trying to like work through, uh, just think about what sort of kind of Advent traditions we want to implement. Uh, we want to teach our kids about Jesus. Christmas is about, not just about presents and, and gifts and uh, trees that are pretty, but uh, Christmas season, the Advent season is all about our King who has come to deliver us. It's all about Jesus. So uh, a couple nights ago, we, as a family, watched the movie The Star. Uh, who, who here has seen The Star? Just a couple. Um, and no surprises, but um, The Star is a kid's movie. It's a, like a digitally animated kid's movie. It's about... Um, it's about the Christmas story. It's about the birth narrative, but from the perspective of animals. So very uh, kids movie-esque. Um, it's, it's fun for my girls, they enjoy watching it. And it's of course a representation of the birth narrative of, of Mary traveling to Bethlehem to give birth. And I personally, I just think they, this movie does a really good job. Um, it receives my stamp of approval. Um, and one thing I think this movie does really well is it portrays Mary and Joseph making some very honest, very desperate prayers to God. And remember, like they're, they're, at this time, they're like currently experiencing a miracle. Like Mary knows that the life that's inside of her is like miraculous because there's something that you're supposed to do before having a kid and she didn't do that thing. So she knows that 
this child is special, that this is a miracle, and they're experiencing it. So there's a lot to be joyful about, but there's also a lot of pressure, a lot of weight that they're feeling. It's daunting, right? Raising the Son of God, uh, being a steward in that manner. So my point is that we can go through these really like monumental things, these really incredible highs. We can see God do miracles in our lives, yet there are still going to be times in the midst of that when we need to uh, bring our desperate cries to God. We need to lay bare our hearts before him. And he invites us to do that because he is a kind and loving father. So before we go any further this morning, let's, uh, let's bring our cries to God. Oh, you know, just think about where do you need deliverance in your life? Bring that to the Lord. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your promises. We're thankful that you've followed through on your promises uh, to provide a king for us who will deliver us, who will free us from every oppression of sin and this world, God. Thank you so much for what you have done on our behalf. And Lord, we confess our deep need for you. Uh, we confess our distraction uh, from your goodness and your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with your spirit. You Would, would you make them soft uh, so that we would love you and worship you um, in sincerity with, with all that we are, Lord. God, we praise you. Please help us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 2 uh, is set in the context of a wider theme of deliverance. Of course, if we think about their historical context, we know that the people of Judea, they've been crying out for someone to deliver them. For centuries, they've been oppressed. They've been heavily taxed. So this is one of the poorest provinces, provinces in the, that's a hard word to say, um, poorest regions in the Roman Empire. Um, they've been abused. They've been mistreated. They've not had their king on the throne. There's been no Davidic king on the throne. They've not been able to see that. So they are a people that are crying out for someone to deliver them, right? They're, they're, this narrative is set in the theme of liberation, the, the expectance of a king who will deliver them. And a question that they all would have been thinking to themselves is, like, when are we finally going to be free? Like, when is the deliverer finally going to come for us? And that's a question that I think we can all relate with at some level. When are we going to be free? When is the deliverer going to come for us. Now, of course, our situation is much different than theirs, our situation in history. Um, but again, I think we can relate to this feeling. When are we going to be free? Right, we've all been in high school. We've all gone through fall semester, spring semester, and then summer. We are finally free. Right? All that expectation for freedom, uh, we finally get to it in the summer. I still remember um, my last summer in high school. So like the summer of my senior year, like once, you know, when I was right about to graduate, 
I remember I had like finished all my assignments, uh, no more exams left, everything, all the projects were done. I still needed to show up for some period of time at school because I was out of unexcused absences. But for a couple days, I was just showing up to school to um, hang out with my friends, chat with my teachers for a little bit, strut around the hallways, you know, act like I own the place, and then just generally bask in the glory of the fact that this season of my life was over. I was finally free. I think a lot of us can kind of relate to that experience. On a more serious note, some of us might be sitting here today and we might be thinking to yourselves, we might be thinking to ourselves, man, when on earth is this season of my life going to be over? When am I going to be free from this season? When are the burdens of the pace of work going to be over? When am I going to be free from my feelings of anxiety, the burden of expectations and time constraints? Some of us might be there today. You know, you might be 18 years into your 20-year career, and you might be thinking to yourself, I cannot wait until this is over. When is this finally going to be over? Like, you know there's an expiration date on your obligations, but still it can feel like there's no freedom in your life, or you're lacking freedom in your life. You need to be delivered from something. So church, what is that? What is that sort of thing for you this morning? Where do you need deliverance? The people of Judah were waiting for an almighty king to deliver them. And Luke's answer is that this almighty delivering king has arrived. He's arrived in humility. He's arrived in gentleness. But he is here. One thing we need to understand about Luke chapter 2 is that it is built upon the context of Isaiah chapter 9. And Isaiah chapter 9 is all about the promise of a king who will deliver his people. Now, we, we read Isaiah chapter 9 in our call to worship. We're not going to read it again now, but I do want to highlight the parallels that we have between these two passages. First, we see that this good news is coming from Galilee. In both Isaiah and Luke, we see the theme that light has appeared. In both Isaiah and Luke, we see that there is an announcement of great joy. Both Isaiah and Luke use this same phrase, for unto you a child is born. Both Isaiah and the book of Luke highlight that this almighty king is the Davidic king. He's the one who is sitting on the throne of David. And with this king comes the promise of peace. Luke chapter 2 is built on the context of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is all about the promise of an almighty king who's going to come and deliver his people. A king who is so powerful that no one can stand against him. He will establish his rule and his reign with ease. He is mighty, he is all-powerful, and yet this powerful king, what we see in Luke, we see that this powerful king is so gentle and so generous. This is our main idea this morning. Though he has arrived in gentleness 
Jesus is the almighty king. He is the almighty king of Isaiah chapter 9, that Isaiah chapter 9 promised. We have three points that arise from the text that uh, illustrate this point. One, the king's accommodations. Two, the king's entourage. And three, the king's announcement. Though Jesus was gentle in his appearance, he is the almighty king and he is here. Let's jump into point number one. Now, just a a couple observations we can make about Christ's accommodations. What do we see about his lodging? What do we see about where he stayed? Well, really humble, really unassuming, really obscure. These are accommodations that are hardly fit for a king, let alone the almighty king of the universe. And this is a really simple observation, but it illustrates exactly what's going on here. And that is the fact that Jesus is an entirely different kind of king. He doesn't care about the conventions of this world. He doesn't have to be like all the other rulers. An entirely different kind of king has arrived. He's unlike any other authority, unlike any other ruler. See, the Gospel of Luke sets up an interesting contrast right at the beginning of Luke chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, for us, Caesar Augustus might be like an obscure historical figure. Like, we know that he's a Caesar. He must be important, but we, we don't know a ton about him. Well, back then, back in the ancient world, everyone would have known exactly who Caesar Augustus is. Caesar Augustus was the ruler in Rome who took Rome from a republic to an empire. He united the Roman Empire, so he he, uh, conquered, uh, if you guys know who Mark Antony is, he conquered Mark Antony, defeated him, and so he subjugated the region of Egypt. He conquered Spain, and he made the Roman Empire incredibly strong. One historian writes that... uh, At that time in Roman history, you could have thought of the Mediterranean Sea as the Roman lake. They exercised that much control over that whole part of the world. Before Caesar Augustus was called Caesar Augustus, his name was Octavius, and he subsequently changed his name to Augustus, which means majestic one. So here at the beginning of Luke chapter 2, We have Caesar Augustus, the self-proclaimed majestic one, making a decree that everyone needs to go back home. They need to stop working, stop what they're doing, go back home and get registered in this census. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not like they were getting paid time off to go have a vacation back at home. This was a difficulty. Everyone is being reminded here exactly who is in charge. Caesar Augustus. I think we've all been around people who like to take every opportunity possible to remind everyone else how important they are. We we know people like that. We've been around people like that. Uh, People like that make me think of The Office, uh, Dwight Schrute and Andy Bernard. Uh, Dwight Schrute, of course, he is the assistant to the regional manager 
And there's an episode where uh, Dwight and Andy are bickering about whose title's more important. Uh, Andy is the director of sales. And of course, Dwight's the assistant to the regional manager. So they're fighting about um, who's more important. And they have this really awkward, long handshake. Um, now, circumstances like that, you know, we might have been around, we might have been involved in circumstances like that. They don't seem too foreign for us, right? That's not, that's a little bit comical, but it's not that far-fetched, that kind of behavior. You see, that kind of behavior really is normal for the world. How much can you posture yourself up to make yourself look important, right? That's worldly behavior. That is typical behavior for the world. It was typical for rulers in the ancient world, and it's typical with middle management today. But guess who didn't care about making sure that everyone knew he was so important? Guess who didn't care about posturing himself up like the rest of the world? The Son of God did not feel the need to behave like everyone else. He didn't feel the need to boast about his position, about his strength, now, that's not like me. It's not like us. Even in the Christian world, we, can still, we still boast. We still take opportunities to boast. We just call it humble brag, you know? We try to boast in a way that is as innocent and unassuming as possible. If you think about it, any other king, any other king would have arrived with all the fanfare, all the media attention, all the best luxury accommodations. If you think about it, any other king would have come in wrath. Jesus here is visiting. He's come into his world that has outright rebelled against him. All right, we've rejected his rules. We've rejected his laws. We've killed his prophets. We've killed his messengers. We've rejected his authority over our lives. In one way or another, we've said that uh, your rules don't apply to me, God. I reject your rule. Your crown means nothing to me. Any other king visits a country like that, a country that has betrayed his loyalty, how do you think that would go? Or not very well. How do you think Caesar Augustus would have reacted if he went to a country that just outright betrayed him like that? It would have been bad news. Caesar Augustus issued in the, what's known as the Pax Romana, the era of peace in, in Roman history. Now the reason why there was so much peace is because Caesar made it a point to crush any rebellion as quickly as possible. He was strict, he was austere, he was severe in his exercise of control over the world. But when Jesus arrived, he did not arrive in wrath. He entered our cursed, rebellious world in the gentlest, most humble way that he possibly could have, as a child. I hope you guys are, are seeing something here. And that is the fact that true power true strength, true confidence 
does not need, feel the need to boast. True power, true strength is gentle. True strength does not, is not displayed like the rest of the world tries to display strength. True strength is gentle. The Son of God entered our world as a child. Verse 7, And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. I find that interesting. That God the Son, the Almighty King of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, he entered into our existence not as an emperor to be feared, not as a Caesar to be feared, but as a son to be treasured. Think about it from Mary's perspective. Before Mary is told the announcement by the shepherds that her son is Savior, Christ, and Lord, before she receives that information from them, before we get to that part of the narrative, Mary sees Jesus, this almighty king, as her son. Verse 7, her firstborn son. The son who needs to eat every two hours. The son who she lullabies to sleep at night. The son who she sings the psalms to. The son who she looks at and her heart melts. This is the son who no doubt Mary would have been speaking the words of Psalm 139 over. Let's look at Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How well would Mary have known this to be true about her child, her child that was miraculously formed, knitted together in her virgin womb, Church, the birth of Jesus illustrates, it communicates the way that God has chosen to deal with the world at this time. And that is in gentleness. Jesus has chosen to deal with the world as someone, as a person to be embraced rather than a Caesar to be feared. Jesus, indeed, is the almighty king of this universe. But he has arrived in gentleness. He has arrived showing us kindness and grace. All right, this brings us to point number two. Uh, the next scene in the narrative. In verses 8 through 15, we see that the shepherds are met by a multitude of angels. And we're told that they were filled with great fear. And... That should make sense. It should make sense that they were absolutely terrified 
Because remember, this passage is all about the arrival of an almighty king who's going to deliver his people. It's about a king showing up to set his people free. And guess who this king has showed up with? His army. An army, a host, a multitude of supernatural, fiery warrior angels. Right? We, we really need to get it out of our heads, any kind of association that we have between angels and those chubby little babies that are flying around in Valentine's Day cards. Angels are nothing like that. They were soldiers. They were warriors. If you guys think back to our king series uh, when Hezekiah was king and the whole city of Jerusalem was surrounded by the army of Assyria, you remember God sent the angel of the Lord to deal with this army. You remember what one angel did to 185,000 men? leveled them, wiped them out. And so here we have this almighty king who has come. He's arrived and he's arrived with a force that could have wiped out all of rebellious humanity. I like how it's illustrated in the kid's book, the story of God, our king. I got a picture for you here. I think it's hard for us to put ourselves in, like in, their, in their place to really just visualize how awesome and terrifying this event would have been. At least for me, this, this kind of helps. Like what a terrifying sight to see. A host, an army of angels standing at the ready for their newly arrived king. But praise God, this king is not like the rest of us. Though he's almighty, though he could have rightfully come in wrath, he has arrived in gentleness. Instead of punishment, he offers us an embrace. He offers us peace. Verse 10, the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Instead of coming in his wrath, Jesus comes to bring joy. He comes to bring peace. Jesus had every single right and all the capability in the world to flatten and destroy all of rebellious humanity, but he offers us peace instead. He is a different kind of king. We see that the angels give this king three different titles in verse 11. We see that Jesus is called Savior, Christ, and Lord. So this son, this son born to Mary, is number one, he's a deliverer. Number two, he's Christ, that means he's a king. And number three, he is Lord. Lord of what exactly? Who is Jesus Lord of? What is Jesus Lord of? Well, the Old Testament uses the term Lord of hosts to refer to God Almighty more than a thousand times in the Bible. And what do we see here? We see that this son born to Mary is being called Lord. Who is he called Lord by? A host of angels. 
Who stands at the ready for this newly arrived king? A host of angels. Who's ready to go to war for him? A host of angels. Who's cheering him on as he enters the world? A host of angels. This is Luke's not-so-subtle way of saying that the Lord of hosts has arrived and his name is Jesus. Though he has arrived in gentleness, Jesus is the almighty king promised in Isaiah chapter 9. This brings us to our last point. The shepherds leave. Uh, Once the angels leave, the shepherds depart at once to go see the child and to relay what had happened to them. And we see that some wondered, but Mary treasured these things up in her heart. So verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things. Now, when we read that in our ESV translation, it it might seem to us that uh, the people who were present, who were wondering, they were like questioning what had happened. Like they wondered what had just happened. Well, that's not the sense in which this word is being used. So the Greek word for, you know, that's translated as wondered by our ESV, it means Uh, to be amazed or to marvel at, theomadzo, to marvel at. And so you take the NASB, for example, will translate this verse uh, by saying that all who heard it were amazed at what they had heard, but Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. So we see some are amazed, and we see Mary who treasures these things. The point here is that Jesus is both a king who we should be marveling at, a king to be amazed at, and also a son to be treasured. Jesus is a son to be treasured, and he is a king to be marveled at. That is the way that Jesus invites us to know him, not just as the almighty king who inspires fear and awe, but as a son to be loved and treasured as a person. Now, of course, all the people here would have, like this would have been an unforgettable experience for them. For all the shepherds, for Mary, for Joseph, anyone involved with this, like they knew from the get-go that Jesus is a king, that he's the deliverer, that he's the promised son. They knew that this kid is amazing. And throughout Luke's narrative, we see people starting to like catch on to this fact. More and more people start following Jesus until you get to the end, like towards the end in Luke chapter 19, verse 38, we see multitudes of people confessing something similar to what the angel said. Uh, on the, it, during Jesus' triumphal entry, a multitude of people are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They've listened to his teaching. They've seen his miracles. They've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. So they're catching on to the fact that, that Jesus really is the king. He's the special king. He's the delivering king that God has promised. But of course, what they didn't expect is the way in which he was going to deliver them. 
They didn't expect that this king was going to deliver them from death by dying in their place, by dying in our place. Church, Christ delivered us from death by allowing the religious authorities, by allowing the political authorities to hand him over to death. He defeated death by dying in our place, by taking exactly what we deserved. For the wages of sin is death. That is what we have earned for ourselves. That is what Jesus took. You see, Jesus has exercised his almighty, omnipotent power in the kindest, most generous way possible. You think about it as almighty king, he could have raised his royal scepter and said to all the world, repent or die. But what did he do? He died for us instead. We talk a lot about the gospel and it's really important that we understand the word gospel in its original context. So the word euangelion, the verb euangelizo, to, to proclaim good news. The gospel means an announcement of good news. That is what it is. Specifically, about the victory of a king. So you take Caesar Augustus, for example, after he conquered all of Spain, there would have been a gospel that was sent all across the Roman Empire that their king was victorious. It was the good news that their king was reigning, that their king defeated his enemies. So when we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the good news that Jesus rules, that Jesus defeated his enemies, that Jesus is victorious. But really, that's only good news for the people who have been loyal to Jesus, for those who have been loyal to Jesus. For all of Jesus' enemies, that's not very good news. That Christ has conquered. And the reality about us, the reality, reality about all humanity is that, uh, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we were all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all enemies of God. So how on earth is the news of Christ's victory good news? How is it good that he defeated his enemies, if we're his enemies? Well, the different thing about Christ's gospel is that he has taken his enemies and he's turned them into his friends. He has conquered our rebellious hearts by serving, by dying in our place. We have a king who conquers through his death. That's, I don't know what to say, but that is amazing. Jesus has exercised his almighty power in the kindest, most generous way possible. But church, there will come a day when the gentle king comes in the fullness of his might. There will come a day when the offer to God's enemies of peace and reconciliation will end. Jesus will no longer veil his almighty power. He will show up in the fullness of his strength. 
Let's read Revelation chapter 19, verses, 18, or verses 11 through 16 together. Here we have a description of Jesus at his return. And keep in mind that the book of Revelation speaks in word pictures. It speaks through imagery. So this is not like a super literal description of what Jesus is exactly going to look like. But it is communicating something about who he is. So verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, this isn't like an exact literal description of what Jesus will look like, but it is communicating to us something about his person. What Revelation 19 communicates to us about Jesus at his return is that he is all-powerful, that he has no equal, that this king is unlike anyone else, infinite in might and glory and goodness and justice. No one will be able to stand before him. Again, I like how the kids' book puts this into a picture for us, the story of God our King. And again, this isn't like a, a literal description of what Jesus will exactly look like at his return. But what it communicates so clearly is that there is no match for our King Jesus Christ. That when he returns, he returns in the fullness of his might, that he is glorious beyond all belief. He has no equal. What this imagery so clearly communicates is that there is not a person, not an army, not a political entity, not a power in heaven or in hell that can stand up against this king. No one can hold a candle to him. He is majestic and wonderful and powerful and good beyond all belief. So we have two options, church. One, we can bend the knee now to this king in love and adoration. Or we can bend the knee at his return in terror and fear. The great almighty king has arrived. And praise God, he has arrived in kindness and in gentleness. So church, how will you receive him? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the incredible kindness that you have shown to us in our almighty King, our almighty Lord Jesus. Thank you for the grace and the reconciliation that you offer to us in him. Lord, we praise you and we thank you and we confess that there is no other name that is so beautiful as his. God, we are privileged to have you as our God and to have Jesus as our King. May we joyfully submit to you. Help us to love you and serve you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.